Amen. You may be seated. Great singing tonight. Thank you so much for being here and those watching online. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to continue and hopefully complete uh, a series of lessons that never was meant to be a series. This was going to be a Sunday school, an adult Bible fellowship um, lesson <clears throat> that uh, I thought would be just one lesson long, one, one fellowship in length, and um, it didn't quite fit, and so I asked Pastor the next week if I could finish it up uh, the next Sunday, which he graciously um, allowed me to try to do, but unfortunately uh, still was not able uh, to finish it. And so hopefully tonight we'll get uh, finished with this idea. And what we've been looking at is this, this idea of the evidences for the Christian faith um, that we see in Scripture. And also we looked at some, uh, some uh, other non-biblical sources as we, as we finished up our time together the last time we were together on this subject. First uh, Peter 3.15 is kind of one of our key verses as we think about the idea of apologetics, I think about the idea of defending our faith and giving a reasonable answer for the faith that lies with, within us, helping people understand that what we believe, we've, and we talked about this in previous lessons, uh, they are online if you'd like to see, see those. Um, you can see the part one and part two. But uh, the idea is that uh, Peter tells us here, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Set him apart. He, he, is, he is our Lord, he is our God, he's our creator, and he's our savior. And as we're doing that, always then be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so we looked at that word defense, that word apologia. It, it is a courtroom term that means to give a coherent uh, defense, to defend one's position on a certain truth. And so it's not really um, especially a Christian word, but Peter is using it here to help us understand uh, the level at which we are to be able to communicate not only what we believe, but why we believe it. That's an important thing. And so, um, and of course, we do that in meekness and in fear. We, we don't bludgeon people with our Bibles. Uh, we don't attack them with the truth and put them down. We lovingly, but fearlessly in a sense of this is fear of the Lord, but, but boldly share uh, the truth and not only what we believe, but why we believe it. On your handout is this chart. I apologize, it's so tiny, you probably can't read it. Um, this is where we finished our time together in our, in our last session uh, in part two of this series. And what we, what we were looking at with this chart is we saw that Compared to all or to many of the other ancient bodies of literature, the the Bible has by far more manuscripts. And if you look at that chart there, you can see what what we mean. I just wanted to review that as we as we go into this. Um, the 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 thing is that. The Bible is often attacked as um, a storybook. And maybe you've heard that as you've had conversations with people. It's just, and it's been changed over the years so much. And uh, it's just made up stories or fairy tales or, or what have you. Um, those miracles could never really have happened. And so critics and atheists attacked uh, God's word and the integrity of it. 
Uh, but we don't see that kind of scrutiny with other ancient texts. So, and we talked about this last time, but you have here the, the author of, of a certain text, you have the date it was written, and then you have the earliest copy of the manuscript. See, with the Bible, we, we do not any longer possess the original autographs, the original paper, if you will, that Paul wrote his letters, for example, or that the Gospels, uh, the Gospel writers wrote their Gospels. We don't have those originals any longer, but we do have manuscripts. Manuscripts are copies, and they're copies of copies and copies of copies of copies. And so the, the attack is often given, well, that all that copying, something must have changed, and we can't know that we have the real word of God here. And I won't go through this whole chart. We did that last time, or at least we did several of them. But if you look at when the, when the, the text was written, let's just start with Tacitus, the second one down, a well-known Roman historian. Uh, he wrote his annals in 100 AD. Uh, the earliest copy we have was written in 900 AD. So we have a span of 800 years. We only have two. Why isn't Tacitus uh, attacked with the same scrutiny the Bible is? Um, Aristotle wrote in the 4th century BC, 400 years before Christ, the earliest copy of his writings uh, dates at 1100 AD. That's a span of 1500 years. We have 49 of those. If we jump down to Homer's Iliad, written in the 9th century BC, earliest copy 400 BC, a, a span of 500 years, and you think, wow, there's 1,700 copies of the Iliad. But then you look to the New Testament where a lot of the scrutiny comes against the Bible. It was written approximately from 40 to 100 AD. Some say everything was completed by, before 70 AD because we know there was a major event in Israel at 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. You see nothing written about that in Scripture. So some argue that is done by 70, but we'll just say 100 for the sake of this argument. Earliest copy, only 25 years later, 125 AD. Number of manuscripts we have, 5,800 Greek manuscripts, plus over 20,000 in other languages, including Latin, Syriac, Coptic, etc. And the amazing thing about these manuscripts is that while there's minor differences between them, not one of them affect any major doctrine or theology. So yes, there are differences, minor variants existing, but none of them impact major doctrines or the historical accuracy of the text. And so if you would like this chart, I actually found this on answersingenesis.org. Uh, so, and if you need the website and you'd like to look at it again, let me know. And again, sorry, I printed out so small on your handout. Um, but let's move forward. What we've been doing and what we had been doing is um, attacking, if you will, or rather answering these different misconceptions about, about Jesus or, and about the Bible. Um, and we made it to this, this one, number four here, that the Jesus of history is unknowable. That's a claim that's made against Jesus Christ. And some of this comes from the idea that Jesus Christ was not an actual flesh and bone person, that Jesus Christ is kind of this uh, mindset that, if you will, 
that that uh, many people have come into, and and they're just this modern version of uh, the Jesus Christ uh, spirit, if you will. Well, the Bible seems to to say otherwise. We looked at some extra biblical sources last time that we talked about this. Um, And then we started looking at biblical sources, and that's why we looked at the chart that we just showed you. But as we go further into the biblical sources, I'd like to start out with the Pauline writings. What was Paul's view of Jesus? Was he a noble person or not? Uh, Scholars believe that many of the epistles that Paul wrote were written before the Gospels. So we'll chronologically go in order here and look at some of Paul's statements that he made. And I'm going to show, I believe, and actually the Bible is going to show, that Paul understood Jesus of Nazareth to be a historical person, a real flesh and bone man that lived in time, space, history, and is knowable. So let's look at a few of these. First of all, Paul showed that he understood Jesus of Nazareth to be a historical person because he states that Jesus was born to a human woman under the law. Galatians 4.4 says, When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Only a real flesh and bone person is born of a woman. So speaking about Jesus' humanity, remember he is truly God, but he is also truly man. In Romans 1.3, we see that Paul claims Jesus as a descendant from David's line concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Um some kind of a spirit does not descend from a human genealogy. He also believed that Jesus was a man, but not like the first Adam, Romans 5, 15, but the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, capitalized here to show that Jesus is deity, but the word man, his humanity, Jesus Christ abounded to many. Uh, he also mentioned that Jesus had human brothers. This is just one example of a pass, many passages in Scripture that tell us that he had human siblings. He says, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, who would go on to write the epistle of James in our Bibles. He also showed that uh, he had a meal on the night he was betrayed. He ate food. As a physical man, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And we could keep going with the passage, a familiar passage for us, 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, Paul mentions Jesus' crucifixion and death on a cross in Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. A spirit does not die on a cross. He also mentions this in Romans 5, 6, that in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Paul mentions his subsequent burial and resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 4. He was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus was a real flesh and bone person. He was a knowable person. He also mentions that he was seen after his resurrection 
by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. What's Paul saying here? If you don't believe that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, there's literally hundreds of eyewitnesses that saw him at the same time in the same place. You're not going to get five people to agree on what they saw uh, if they're all making up a story about it. But if 500 people are together in a room and they all see a risen Christ and they touch and handle him as a real person, that's a conspiracy that is really impossible to propagate among people. So Jesus, the Jesus of history is indeed noble according to Pauline writings. That's his view of Jesus. Let's look at Paul's use of Jesus' teachings. Paul used several of the Lord's teachings, and that's what we're going to look at next. He was very familiar with very specific teachings about Jesus. Let's look at a few. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11, it quotes Jesus' words over the bread and cup at the Last Supper in considerable detail, in language very close to what Luke later wrote in Luke 22, which says that he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them, his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Well, and we mentioned 1 Corinthians 11 already. I won't read the whole passage, but he basically writes almost word for word, not quite word for word, what Luke wrote in his gospel. And so uh, this was a teaching that was propagated in the church. This was something that was taught. This was one of the most foundational teachings of the apostles, especially in those early days of the church as they were establishing it. And Paul would have sat under some of those teachings. Um, He also appeals to Jesus' principles that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Um, Jesus said in Luke 10, 7, when he sends his disciples out, if you remember that, he sends them out twice. He sends the 12 out. Another time he sends out the 70. And he gives them instructions, and some of the instructions are different in those two groups. But in one of the groups, at least, he says um, that you are to remain in the house where you stay. As you're staying in a village and you're having this preaching ministry, and someone opens the door in hospitality to you, you're to stay there eating and drinking such things as they give you for the laborer is worthy of his wages Do not go from house to house. And so what does Paul say about that? Even so, the Lord has commanded. What's he talking about there? He's referring back to Jesus' command uh, that, that we read in the Gospels. He's commanded that those who preach the Gospel should live uh, from the Gospel. Let's move on. Uh, Paul knows that Jesus opposed divorce. And, and um, I, I apologize that this is a lot of repetitive just going back and forth between, but it's, it's building our case. It's helping us understand uh, the power of, of what we're talking about. Mark 10, verse 7 through 9, is where Jesus quotes out of uh, Genesis when he talks about the, husband, the man and, and shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife. The two should become uh, one flesh. And then he says at the end, what God has joined together, let not man separate. 
uh, Paul, and, and there's more verses than this, but for time's sake, we just narrowed it down to 1 Corinthians 7.10. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Notice his, his um, calling out uh, to Christ's authority in this matter. It's, ju- it's not just me as, the, as an, the apostle, even though he had the authority to do this. He appeals to a higher power here. The teaching of the Lord, a wife is not to depart uh, from her husband. Uh, Jesus supported the paying of taxes, and, and Paul also repeats that command. So in Mark twelve seventeen, Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Remember, they tried to trap him here. Hey, Jesus, is it good, you know, the Pharisees, is it good to pay taxes to Caesar? And so he flips it around just like every time he was, um, they attempted to snare him in his words and uh, basically says, what, what image is on the coin, if you remember? And, and they say, well, it's Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar's, what well, Caesar's, what, um, and to God the things that are God's. And the question they, they forgot to ask, well, where is God's image? Caesar's is on the coin. Where is God's? And if they would have asked that, I think he would have answered, it's you. You are made in God's image. You are to render yourself unto God. But Paul, um, continuing here, Paul also um, repeats this. He says, render therefore to all, their, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Uh, Paul taught about not repaying evil for evil, but loving one's enemies and praying for one's persecutors. Again, these are the commands of the Lord in Luke 6. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. And what does Paul say in Romans 12, 14? Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Um, he talks also about not judging, but tolerating one another on morally neutral matters. Yes, we are to judge. It's, it's not that we never are to judge or make, make a biblical deci- uh, decision um, and even call out sin and so forth. But when it's a morally neutral matter, uh, it's better to understand the whole thing before something is said and, and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7 verse 1 said, judge not that you be not judged. And then uh, Paul repeats that in Romans 14 verse 4, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him stand. Paul understands that Jesus declared all foods clean. Uh, Jesus was preparing the hearts to move out of the law and to move into the, the age of grace. So in Mark 7, he says to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminating, thus purifying all foods. What does Paul say? I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus. There is his call to Christ, his appeal to to the Lord's authority, that there is nothing unclean of itself, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. He also, and this is the final one we'll look at um, tonight, he warned of God's imminent judgment on the leadership of the nation of Israel. Um, Jesus talks about this in Matthew 23, and we won't read this whole passage, but if we skip down to the bottom there, um, basically he says that from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, is upon you. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. What did Paul have to say about it? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he talks about the leaders of Israel here. That's the context. 
in verses 15 and 16. They killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But what has come upon them to the uttermost? God's wrath. So as we look at the teachings of Paul, and we look at the teachings of Christ, if Jesus was not a knowable person, why would Paul appeal to his authority as if he was a knowable person? Um, it doesn't make sense that he would have done that. Before we move on, I want to go back to this passage that we looked at earlier. Um, Paul uses some specific language here. Notice that he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, He's about to give what we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for us. And notice, though, that that phrase that's underlined, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. The language of receiving and passing on here is technical terminology for carefully memorized oral tradition. As a central Christian doctrine, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, in fact, it is, it is the central doctrine. It is the foundation stone upon which all of our faith stands. Saul of Tarsus, who we know as Paul, would have been taught these basic gospel facts not long after his conversion. Remember, he did meet with the apostles. He spent time under their authority, learning from them. His conversion took place approximately three years or so after Jesus' death. But he didn't start in ministry till many years after that. But if you think about this, in those three years, already in that very short period of time, the belief that Jesus was bodily raised from death was entrenched as the heart of fundamental teaching new converts that they had to learn. Paul being a new convert. Remember Barnabas brings him to the apostles when they're kind of like, hey, this guy was killing our, and put in imprisoning our people, and are you really sure this isn't a trick? Barnabas says, this, this is for real. He brings Paul into the apostles in Jerusalem, and Paul begins to learn. He begins to grow in his faith in Christ. And um, so they would have taught him this. And so this, this idea that Jesus was bodily raised was, uh, from death was entrenched as the heart of the teaching. So why, why are we saying this? Well, because one of the accusations about the resurrection is that that was a made-up story by Jesus' followers to, to deify a man that wasn't really God. Um, and, and the other um, attack or accusation is that his resurrection was one of these um, myths. You know, like... Um, uh, urban legends that start off as one story and as you pass through the generations the story morphs and changes I wish I had an example to give you uh, maybe you have something like that in your family where grandpa told this story from his grandpa or whatever and, and you're like well is this really you know it's like the fishing stories is it really real or was it you know did it change over the years well the specificity with which they give this teaching denies that um, it, it was entrenched in their hearts that Jesus was put to death on a Roman cross, was buried, and, and rose again bodily for them. And so 
Paul says, I delivered to you what I received. I'm passing on the truth to you that this was true. So those are the Pauline writings. Let's look at the gospel writings briefly. And we're going to look at some um, so-called contradictions in the gospels. So we've looked at extra biblical literature. We've looked at the Pauline sources. But the bulk of evidence for Jesus as a knowable historical person is found in the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they're so similar in content and in form, whereas the Apostle John's gospel written probably later um, holds other information. You know what, though? These gospels are written like ancient world biographies. These are the biographies of, of Christ. They're canonized for us in Scripture, but they give us the life of Christ. Conservative scholars believe that the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were likely written in the early to mid-60s A.D., while liberals placed them later, 60 to 80. But in either case, the largest gap, and this is important to get, the largest gap between the documents and the events they described is about 50 years or less, probably more like 30 years. So Jesus lived on earth, died, buried, rose again. Only a gap of 30 years went by before these things were written down and dispersed among the early church. Now, in 2023, in our modern digital age, that seems like a really long time, doesn't it? But that, that's not so in the ancient world. Uh, in the ancient Mediterranean world, that is surprisingly short to go from the events to when they were written down. I want to give you an example of that. Has anyone here ever heard of a man named Alexander the Great? All of our hands should go up, I think. So Alexander the Great had biographies written about him. And by the way, how do you know about Alexander the Great? From history, because somebody wrote down what he did and his conquests and everything, and, and we have that recorded for us through history. Yes, he's, he is in Scripture. Yes, he's part of the, um, in Daniel, part of the prophetic. But any case, um, there are biographies of Alexander the Great. We have the four Gospels, the biographies of Christ. There are two biographies, at least two that, um, as I was reading about, exist. They were written by two different people, Plutarch and Arian. These men lived in the late 1st and early 2nd centuries A.D. But Alexander died in 323 B.C. This is a span of over 400 years. Nowhere close to the 30-year gap for the Gospels. Yet, historians believe that they can reasonably compile a reliable, accurate history of the life of Alexander from these biographies. And this is in spite of the fact that these two biographies contain variants that must be harmonized and two very different ideological grids through which these two historians write from. So these two men that wrote the biographies we're not sitting in the same room. They, they weren't on necessarily on the same, quote, page of history. They were coming at this from completely different angles. And there's variance, and they have to be harmonized together. 
Yet historians have little doubt that we have at least a pretty good idea of the, about the life of Alexander the Great. It's really not questioned much in scholarship. And so if scholarship can be so optimistic about knowing the historical Alexander the Great, that he was a, a knowable person in history, we should be assured that we have yet another evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is a historical knowable person. So the gospel writings, let's look at a few contradictions that are, I'll, I'll call them apparent contradictions. I don't believe there are any contradictions in our Bible. Um, we have things that look like contradictions, but when we just approach the text logically with, with an open mind, a truly open mind, we see that those contradictions begin to dissolve away. And we find these in, in the, between the four Gospels. So we're reading in one Gospel and we read about something that happened in Jesus' life, an experience with him or his disciples or other people. Then we read a parallel passage in another Gospel and we see some differences. Why are those differences there? That's what we want to look at uh, this evening. So let's look at a few of those. Um, in Mark 6, 51 to 52, we read about the disciples' response to Jesus walking on the Sea of Galilee. So you remember that. The storm happens. There's Jesus out on the water. Peter goes out to him. They both come back into the boat after Peter almost drowns. He went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. And notice what Mark adds in verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Wow, this is interesting insight the Holy Spirit gave to John Mark as he wrote this down. But let's look at a parallel passage out of Matthew 14. After this happens, then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. So in Matthew's account, they worship Jesus, but in Mark's account, their hearts were hardened. Why are they different? Is this a contradiction? Well, some things to help us understand. Uh, we've, we first of all have to understand that the four gospel accounts uh, do record much of the same information. This is an example of a parallel passage and a lot of your Bibles will have in the back um, a harmony of the Gospels. And you can actually buy harm, a harmony of the Gospels. It's a separate volume. And, and multiple people have, have uh, produced those. And they are pretty interesting to read. But usually there's four columns, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you have the events over on the left and you can see the parallel passages. Well, here's one that doesn't seem to be that parallel. There seems to be a difference in the heart of the disciples. As we read the gospel accounts, we, we see the same information, but we see it from a different perspective. Mark's purpose for writing was not the same as Matthew's purpose, not the same as Luke's or John's. Each one of the four men wrote their gospels down, yes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but for four different unique purposes. They both, they each emphasize a slightly different part of who Jesus was, for example, or why he came. Mark, 
we find that he often highlights the disciples' failures and misunderstandings of Jesus. You say, well, why did he do that? Well, that's what the Holy Spirit directed him to write about. It's important for us to to know about that. But Matthew focused on their moments of great faith and worship more often than their failures. So as we really carefully study the Gospels, we see different things highlighted and presented to us. So how do we harmonize these? Well, the hearts were hardened. Uh, We're not going to try to say that Mark was wrong. I mean, it's right there in Scripture. We looked at the verse. So could be their hearts were hardened, but Mark just stopped short of telling us that their hearts were softened by what they saw and, and they fell down in worship. So it's not a true contradiction. It's just looking at the same information from two points of view, highlighting two different truths. Let's look at another one out of Matthew 8. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. So in Matthew's account, the centurion comes to Jesus. And it looks like he's coming to him in person. If we just take the text at face value, that's, that's what I would read. I think most of us would also. He comes to Jesus and he says these words. Let's look what Luke says about it. In Luke 7 verse 3. So when he heard about Jesus, and this is talking about the same man, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. So, Does the centurion go and personally request the healing, or does he send other people to go? Well, it's likely that he sent other people because it's perfectly acceptable to speak of someone saying something, even if it literally occurred through an appointed agent. We still have this today. For example, uh, the press secretary for a dignitary, a president of somebody, comes out to the podium in a press conference and reads a statement that was written by a speechwriter who got his information from the president or the dignitary, whoever it was. Yet, when the news reports on that, they say these words, today the president said, and then they, they repeat what the press secretary said as she read from the paper that the speechwriter wrote who got his information from the president. So we see this today, and so we can understand the Gospels are not contradictory. Yes, they make us think. They make us scratch our head and dig into the text more, and that's the point. God wants us to to see. Let's look at one more. Let's discuss the account of the individuals at the tomb on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. Were they angels or were they men? Let's look and see. Mark says, entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. A young man. Who is this young man? Let's look at another account. Matthew 28, verses 2 and 3. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. 
it's pretty clear that this was an angel. So was there angels and men? What's the deal? Let's look at one more. Out of Luke 24, verse 4. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two now, two men stood by them in shining garments. So what do we have going on here? Do we have men or do we have angels? Or do we have both? Was there one or two? Why different descriptions? Well, first of all, if we step back from, the, from this immediate text and look at the Bible as a whole, the Bible almost always, possibly always, describes and records angels as men wearing bright white clothing. It's very consistent. A man in bright clothing is often used to identify an angel. So there was no need for Mark, I believe, and Luke to use the word angelos or angel or messenger because the original audience, which is something we always have to take into consideration as we read God's word, who was the original audience and how would they have understood this? The original audience would have understood they were angels just by the description. It doesn't matter that they used the word man. They said men that were in bright clothing. That was enough for the first century audience. They would have immediately understood, oh, that's an angel. There's no need to write the word angel. What about the number of them? Well, if there were two, like Luke recorded, it is not at all inaccurate to say the woman saw one young man who was the spokesperson for the pair. Just because there was two doesn't mean that every gospel writer is going to record two. One of them was speaking, and so that's all he felt necessary, and all the Holy Spirit felt it was necessary to write in that, in that verse. Now, these are just, uh, this is, I think, three. I think we looked at three variants within the Gospels. There's a lot more but they can all be carefully scrutinized and understood in the way that we have done the three here tonight. Now what about, now these were all in the synoptic gospels. What about the gospel of John? The gospel of John has more unique data than any of the other gospels. And that's why it's not included in the synoptics. It can't be. So tonight we, we lack the time to go into detail. But we, should, we can understand this. John was likely written last. And so the Holy Spirit was not wanting to repeat the same information again for the fourth time. He had other ground to cover. And boy, when we read the Gospel of John, he had some great ground to cover, didn't he? Um, his approach is just so powerful, so evangelistic. I'm so thankful for the Gospel of John. So we've looked at these several misconceptions, um, not all tonight in previous lessons, but we looked at the misconception that Christianity is a blind faith. We've looked at the idea that just sincerity, just have faith in faith, faith big enough is enough. The Bible's full of myths. We looked at that. And we've also looked at the idea that the Jesus of history is unknowable. Um, it didn't make it on the slide, but the, the, uh, the fifth one is that Loving Christians should accept other religious views. Is it on your handouts, is that? Okay, good. 
um, loving Christians should accept other religious views. Have you ever been told as a Christian that you need to be more tolerant or heard that being stated about Christianity? You need to be more tolerant. Critics, critics ask, why do you think your way is the only way? That's just rude to say that. That's wrong. Why can't you accept other people's views? You need to be more tolerant. They keep using that word, tolerant. I don't think it means what they think it means. It gets thrown around a lot. Let's look at what Webster had to say about it. In Webster's New World Dictionary of English, third edition, says this, that tolerance is to recognize and respect, and he's talking about others' beliefs, practices, and so forth, without sharing them and to bear or put up with someone or something not especially like. Is that the definition of tolerance being used in our culture today? No. But that is really what tolerance is. We recognize, we respect other belief systems. We welcome them to come in and sit and learn. We will love you. We're going to care for you. We're going to try to help you here at at our church. But we don't have to share your belief system. We can can love without affirming. It's one of the biggest um, lies, I guess, that our culture has redefined the word love to be affirmation. I'm so glad that that's not true. I'm glad that I, I, my mom did not affirm me as I grew up as a little boy every time I wanted to do something. So let's look at this tolerance biblically. The Apostle Paul wrote about uh, love in 1 Corinthians 13, but I think this helps us understand tolerance from a biblical perspective. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It sees, tries to see the best in others. Believe that they're doing what they're doing out of love. And I'm going to hope that eventually that God works in their heart and we see transformation, we see life change. I'm going to endure criticism so that I have a chance to share the gospel and chance to love that person. There's a men's uh, fraternity group called Lambda Chi Alpha. And um, I I read about this in in a book, and I went online to see if it still exists, and it does. And a former executive vice president of this fraternity named Thomas Helmbach, he defined tolerance this way. The definition of new tolerance, new tolerance, oh, is that every individual's beliefs, lifestyle, and perception of truth claims are equal and that all truth is relative. This view sees truth as inclusive. Like a mother hen gathering her chicks under her wings, truth in this view gathers everyone's beliefs under her wings, regardless of whether or not they oppose one another. However, in doing so, they've dismantled the very idea and concept of what truth really is. Truth cannot be inclusive. It must be exclusive 
or it is no longer truth, whatever you want to call it. It always makes a division. I'll give an example. It might be kind of silly. What's the capital of our, of our country? What city? Washington, D.C. It's the only capital of our country that I know of. Does anyone know of another capital city of America? It's the only one. No other city in America can claim to be the capital of the country. As much as we love Union Grove, where we're situated, or in Burlington where I live, or name your city, you might love where you live, but you can't claim that it's the capital of the United States, even if you wanted to do that. And can you imagine how ridiculous you would sound? Where do you live? Oh, I live in the capital of the U.S. Oh, you live in Washington, D.C.? Oh, no, I live in Union Grove, Wisconsin. <laughs> People are going to laugh just like you're laughing because it's a truth that we've defined that Washington, D.C. Is the, is the nation's capital. Not only can no other city in the U.S. make that claim, but no other city in the world can make that claim. The same is true of Christianity. If the claims of Christianity are true, we would, and we would say that they are, then, no other, then any other claim that stands in opposition to Christianity is deemed false automatically. No matter what you want to call it or how you want to describe it, if it opposes biblical Christianity, it is immediately false. What did Jesus have to say about absolute truth? Well, let's look at a couple verses. In Matthew 10, 34, Jesus said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Well, that's gonna happen at the end, right? But that's not gonna happen yet. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Anytime a person makes a truth claim, he is automatically claiming any other thing opposed to it is false. He's making a truth claim and a false claim at the same time. That's exactly what Jesus did. He, in many ways, was divisive in in a good way. I hesitate to use that word, but truth be told, that's the truth. He made truth claims and statements boldly that defied any other attempt to claim that as true. And of course, we are familiar with John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the way. Yeah, there, there's not a way Not one of many ways, plural. I am the way, singular. When Jesus said this, he immediately cut away and pushed aside any other claim to get to the Father. I am the truth. I thought truth was relative and there was lots of truths, not in Christianity, not according to God. And, and that doesn't, hear me, that doesn't mean that we are arrogant and angry about it. He is the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. I like what Norman Geisler said it. In the long run, openness, and this is, a, we'll, we'll close here, but openness cannot really be true unless it is open to some real absolutes that cannot be denied. 
This idea of being open-minded means that eventually I'm going to land on a truth and I'm going to hang on to that as true and I'm going to reject other things as true. That's what real open-mindedness is. Open-mindedness should not be confused with empty-mindedness. One should never remain open to a second alternative when only one can be true. And that's what what happens when people uh, attack Christianity. They say, why aren't you more open-minded? Well, I was open-minded until I found Jesus. And I found the Lord and I found the word. And it's not that I'm closed-minded to loving you, but I am closed-minded to anything that exalts itself against the word. So this is not an issue of tolerance. This is an issue of truth. The last one, which we don't have much time for, actually. Oh, good, that clock's fast. So we, we have a little bit extra time. Um, the idea that this, this is the claim that's made oftentimes, I have an intellectual problem with Christianity. I can't really wrap my mind around that being true, so I'm going to reject it at an intellectual level. Well, let's look at this uh, in, in more detail. So, and, and as we conclude here, a, a question comes to mind. After all the evidence, the solid, logical, reasonable arguments that we've made throughout this whole study, tonight, last time, two, two, two other um, sessions, why do people still continue to reject Jesus? Well, there could be many reasons. But I'd like to argue that it is often not the mind that rejects Jesus. It is the will. It is often a matter of I won't believe versus I can't believe. So if an unbeliever investigates the claims of Christ but concludes that he simply can't believe and he's able to express why he can't believe, This is actually common ground with us as believers. He is rejecting and and choosing not to believe from a factual and historical point of view, if this was true about this unbeliever. But we believe in Christ from a factual, historical point of view. We've both investigated the evidence, but we've come to two different conclusions. Unfortunately, though, this is often not the case. As I said, I think many times it's, the, it's not the mind that rejects Jesus, it's the will. Josh McDowell writes about um, an interaction with a couple different students. One at a New England university said he had an intellectual problem with Christianity and therefore could, could just not accept, just could not accept Christ as Savior. Why can't you believe? I asked. He replied, the New Testament is not reliable. I then asked, if I demonstrate to you that the New Testament is one of the most reliable pieces of literature of antiquity, will you believe? He retorted, no. You don't have a problem with your mind, but with your will, I answered. A graduate student at the same university after a lecture on the resurrection hoax or history, and this is Josh McDowell's um, quote here, bombarded me with questions intermingled with accusations. Later, I found he did this with most Christian speakers. After about a 45 minutes of dialogue, I finally asked him, if I prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ was raised from the dead and is the Son of God, will you consider him? 
The immediate and emphatic reply was no. Most people reject Christ, not from the mind, but from the will. Let's look at a couple of reasons as we close here. One is self-imposed ignorance. We won't read the whole passage, but in Romans 1, it gives us that downward spiral called the wrath of God. Verse 24, 26, and 28. It says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Verse 19, what may be known of God is manifest in them, in the unbeliever. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. Notice, being understood mentally, being understood by the mind, by the things that are made. As we look at the world around us and the general revelation of creation, it's evident that there was a designer, but they reject him. Jesus said this about the, the scribes. They, didn't, they were mistaken because they didn't know the scriptures or the power of God. They were self-ignorant. Another reason is pride. In John 5, 40 through 44, um, John writes that, uh, that Jesus is speaking here, but you were not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men. He says, you're not willing to, to come. And the last reason is moral issues. Uh, in John 3, that, uh, verses 19 and 20, this is the condemnation that the light, speaking of Christ, has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. It says that everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. So as we conclude here, and I won't read this whole quote, but Huxley was an atheist, and um, I won't take the time to read that, but he basically says the same thing from his point of view. He didn't want to, to find reason. He didn't want to find uh, logic in the world around him. He was happy believing that there was no God, and he had reasons for continuing to believe that. As we conclude, I'd like you to consider again 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to give a defense. Our faith is not blind. It's not unreasonable. It's not myth. Jesus is a knowable person, and we can share his love with others. So be ready to give that defense. And as we close tonight, maybe you're here or you're watching, and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you have considered the claims of Christianity and found it difficult to believe that what the Bible says is actually true. Well, hopefully tonight we've been able to show you just a little bit, and this is just a small sliver, if you will, of the arguments, the apologia, the defense that we have of our Christian faith. Um, so my call to you is what God is calling as well. Will you believe in Jesus tonight? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that our faith is not based on uh, fancies or fairy tales or myths or legends. But, Lord, you've given us concrete, solid truth. Lord, we've, we've examined several claims tonight that skeptics have lodged against your word. We found them coming up short, Lord, in every one, and I know that there are many hundreds more but I, I believe, Lord, that those also come up short when we 
take the time to carefully examine uh, this ancient text that is so relevant in this modern age, and we thank you for that. Please be with those that don't know you yet as Savior, that have not placed their faith, Lord. They've been given some great um, reasons why belief should, should be there, but Lord, the most important thing is that they understand that they are a sinner. They understand that the penalty of sin is death, but the gift that you have given us eternal life, but it only comes through placing our faith in Christ. Lord, help them to do that tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for the closing song.